0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're The Trade Guys.
1: You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand.
2: I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caporal, filling in for Andrew Schwartz. In this episode, we welcome a special guest. Scott Paul is the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, or AAM. It's a partnership that was established in 2007 by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. We discuss the intersection of trade and manufacturing and what the U.S. should be doing domestically while engaged in the trade war with China. You'll hear all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. We're here this week with a brand new episode of The Trade Guys. Joining us is Scott Paul, who is the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, or AAM. It's a partnership that was established in 2007 by some of America's leading manufacturers uh, as well as the United Steelworkers Union. Scott and AAM work to make sure that American manufacturing and made in America is a top concern for voters and our national leaders. They do that through advocacy, policy development, and research. Scott also serves as the board chair of the National Skills Coalition and on the board of the visitors of the Political Science Department at Penn State and he sits on the Leadership Council of the Alliance for Manufacturing Foresight. Welcome to the show, Scott. Why don't you just tell us a bit more about your work with the Alliance and what exactly the Alliance does on the ground, what are the top issues for the Alliance, and how do you fit into the trade picture?
3: Thanks. I'm happy to be on The Trade Guys. I feel like a trade guy. Well, it's um,
1: possible that you will earn a merit badge from today's performance. <laughs> so we don't have any honorary
2: trade guys yet, but,
1: right. but we're, think, we're considering. That. We're working on bobbleheads. Yeah. So we'll be happy to give you one. If the, yeah, I we, think we can
3: find an American source for that. <laughs> so, so. Well, that would be hard, but good. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll consult. Glad, glad to hear that. Yeah. Right. So I also do uh, a podcast called The Manufacturing Report, where we talk to a lot of people who have started up Uh, manufacturing enterprises uh, around the country or visiting manufacturing communities. And and we've been doing that for a few years as well. So what do we do? You know, there there are plenty of advocacy groups, think tanks, trade associations in Washington, D.C. I think the reason we got created is that our founders saw kind of a gap. It was a collaborative gap that is labor and business don't Often work together on issues. There are exceptions to that, but as a rule, they're at loggerheads on a lot of things in Washington. There are also very few groups who have a purely kind of domestic manufacturing perspective. I brought my experience from Capitol Hill. I was a trade guy. I worked for a number of the Democratic leaders in the 90s, big trade battles for NAFTA, China. And we've been trying to approach the issues uh, a little different way to shed a little light on them, take them out of the philosophical scope, free trade trade versus protectionism, and look at some of the results and what those have meant for impacted industries. We've looked at glass and aluminum and steel and paper uh, and a lot of uh, domestic manufacturing. We've looked at procurement markets and trade policy, and we try to encourage our policymakers to respond.
0: So you publish studies?
3: We do. We've commissioned a number of studies over the years with outside researchers. We've contracted with Duke University, University of Massachusetts, several think tanks and independent researchers around town on topics as broad as the WTO appeals process and what that has meant for trade enforcement in the United States. Oh, well, I'd like to see that one. We're working on that here. <laughs> Which is a flummoxed a lot of people, I think, to the kinds of subsidies that particular sectors in China receive from the government in terms of energy, uh, taxes, direct subsidies. Those are a staple, I think, of our engagement. And we've commissioned polls. We've had a bipartisan polling team that's worked for a number of leading Democrats and Republicans before. And so for the past 10 years, we've been taking the temperature of the American people on their attitudes, on American workers, on manufacturing, and on trade policy as well.
0: You make those public?
3: We do. We, in fact, the top line polls and the cross tabs, those are always public. It's all at AmericanManufacturing.org, conveniently labeled under the research
1: tab. All right. Good to know. No surprise, but that's terrific. They're always always good to have more more facts more better understanding of where what what voters think and how they how they behave that's what that's what good advocacy is all about, and it's what uh, what ultimately gets to good public policy. So, and thanks Scott knows
0: facts, oh. Scott Miller. More importantly, he remembers them,
3: <laughs> um, which I don't usually. Just one interesting point about the polling that it showed, and I would say this and people would be in disbelief. It showed up in our polling that Republican voters years ago favored, I think, what you would call a more pushback on trade. They weren't just reflexively kind of sure. free trade. That was never reflected in the national Republican Party well, it, until actually that, that top,
1: 2016. Precisely. Yeah. That topic has actually come up several times on this show. Bill and I have both noted separately in our writing and on the show that both parties tend to be out of step with their voters on this issue, that, that Republican voters who are also older voters and more rural voters – have a higher degree of skepticism about trade, whereas Democratic voters who are younger and more urban actually are now more pro-trade, pro-trade agreements. And it's, it's an odd balance. And you're right. It did it was, from, to my mind, a strong factor, particularly in key states in the 2016 election. But it's something we're, we've both noticed and we're wondering how this resolves itself.
0: Well, it's also, I mean, it's, that's historically consistent. I mean, the Republicans for since their founding, uh, Abraham Lincoln was a major protectionist. They were always the party of northern manufacturers who were concerned about imports from the from then Great Britain and and elsewhere, and the Democrats were based in the South and they were an agriculture party in the in the beginning and they wanted free trade because they wanted to export their cotton and yeah. and their other products. So, I mean, there have been changes over the years, but in a way, I think right now the parties seem to be going back to their roots in some respects. The politicians, not so much.
3: The
1: voters, yes. The voters are, yes.
3: They are. And I will say we're at a time where also the policy is very much connected with the personality. And that has impacted, uh, I think, public attitudes on this as well.
2: So on the policy, I mean, it is a time of evolution and some fluidity in terms of where trade policy is. What does the right policy formula look like? for manufacturer, for the worker, for the industry, and for the alliance, right? You know, are there aspects of that in the administration's trade policy? Paint us a little bit of a picture of what, what you want you for, to see. What are you
3: for? What are you against? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, well, first of all, I like, and I like, you know, former Congressman Sandy Levin, I think had a good construct of this, like the three-legged stool of trade policy, where you have trade enforcement, where you have market opening, and where you also have adjustment, Uh, and that all of those legs need to have a solid foundation and need equal attention. And so, you know, this administration obviously has stepped up trade enforcement and has done a number of executive actions, which I think far exceed... Most other presidents—I uh, mean, you've seen currency interventions uh, in the past, and, and Nixon intervened directly. You know, it's been underutilized, probably. On the other fronts, on market opening, you know, you've seen a renegotiated NAFTA, which is still in process. You've seen some promises of negotiations with Japan and the EU. You haven't seen much fruit born from that, and and I guess also with the UK. And with respect to adjustment, you know, it's interesting. I still don't think we have a fantastic adjustment assistant for workers who are displaced, whether it's from trade or from automation, and that we lag far behind our global competitors there, at least the industrialized Western competitors. Uh, it, and it's okay to tell our audience we're terrible at that. We as we a country are terrible do a lousy job. We've, we've yeah. said that ourselves. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that, you know, this back and forth with China, where you've seen, you know, the agricultural community get about, I think, $20 billion now in uh, in farm payments. Mm-hmm. The annual budget, of course, it's kind of subject to, to need and all that for trade adjustment assistance, which is mostly for manufacturing workers, also for some service workers. It's about a billion dollars a year. Uh, and it's a much bigger sector of the economy. Sure. But we don't, we don't do a good job of that at
0: all. And I spent most of my time on the Hill simply trying to save the program We played defense most of the time against
1: administrations in both parties that uh, wanted to cut it back, which I never understood. The core problem is we can't look at it holistically and maintain the jurisdiction in Ways and Means and the Finance Committee. It's a quirk of the Congress is that if this program were actually big and successful, the jurisdiction would go to the Help Committee in the Senate and probably education and the workforce in the House and then get separated from its longtime advocates in Ways and Means and Finance. So it's a pickled that our our own system makes more difficult to resolve. Right, and it's
3: it's already I think overly politicized in the sense that it's leveraged for when trade authorities come around or trade agreements and it it's it's rarely I think delinked and considered apart from
2: that. Right. And so for our viewers trade adjustment assistance is something that workers who you know, can prove that they lost their job because of trade, can apply for, and it's essentially, it's part of the social safety net, right? And I think part of the idea that you're discussing, Scott, is to expand trade adjustment assistance under a broader umbrella and kind of just make it adjustment assistance. Because oftentimes, particularly with manufacturing, you hear about foreign companies, foreign businesses, foreign competitors undercutting Americans, you know, essentially being a trade cheat and stealing American jobs, right? And there is some debate, certainly, um, you know, whether job losses in U.S. manufacturing can be attributed just to trade or whether it can be attributed to automation or increases in efficiency elsewhere. And so the idea could be to expand adjustment assistance beyond trade in case you lose your job from one of those other ideas. Do those other factors play into getting the trade formula right? So being able to respond to automation and new technology in manufacturing.
3: Yeah, I think they're all linked. I don't think there's a question about that. You know, I think if you were to kind of enumerate and weigh what's held manufacturing back over the last two decades, the recessions, it's a very cyclical uh, business. It's not like healthcare, where there's a need for it as the population ages. This is much more cyclical based on business conditions. Number two was the surge of imports from China in the aughts. I think that was unprecedented and had a direct and powerful impact in the United States. And part of that was from a trade perspective. Part of that was from adjustment perspective, too. I think the EU did a much better job of adjusting to it than we did, for instance. And there's a good amount of academic research that suggests that as well. And obviously, I think automation is much more of a job changer than a job destroyer. When I walk into a steel mill and say, I've been in the same steel mill in Cleveland over three different decades. Mm -hmm. and the jobs are continuously evolving. The headcount has only kind of nominally changed because they're able to find new markets, new products. They can expand their production, add another shift. The jobs may change some, but I think that automation serves much more as a ceiling for the amount of manufacturing jobs rather than the primary or the principal job destroyer, which I think is is obviously uh, economic performance, recessions, and then how the trade picture looks as well. well
0: let, let me pursue that for a minute, because I, I don't agree with with you at least. On I did expect you would. Well, in, in one particular sector, I, my experience has been somewhat different, but it goes back farther than yours, so maybe I'm just you know digging up old bones. When I was on the Hill, which was in the uh, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, uh, most of the time I worked for steel state senators, John Hines and Jay Rockefeller, and I spent 17 years running the Senate Steel Caucus and we would do battle on a lot of the same issues that you're doing battle now. Right. That's the wonderful thing about trade is no problems are ever solved and so it's permanent employment. But we had our victories from time to time and kept some plans open and saved some jobs. But if you look at the whole thing from like 1973, which was really before I started doing that till, till now, it seems to me we are making about as much steel as we ever made with one fourth of the workers. And there have been ups and downs. It's a cyclical industry. it leads on the downturn and lags on the upturn. so they've got a lot of problems. But the fact remains that over a very long period of time, we're making lots of stuff. We're making lots of steel, and we're not doing it with the same number of workers we did before. In fact, we're doing it with probably you know only one fourth of the workers that we did before. There's something up here, it seems to me, besides trade. There are larger macroeconomic forces that are at work here that are determining the course of events.
3: Yeah, I, I don't disagree that productivity obviously impacts the number of workers you need to produce the same unit of goods or even Which more. Which is an outgrowth
0: of technology and, in other and right, things. right.
3: But you know that coupled with, I mean, we reached peak production, peak output in steel in 1975. Uh, That was our peak year for steel production. It's gone down since then. Steel demand has stayed pretty constant. It's ticked up, and that has been filled with imports. We import more steel than any other country in the world, and it's by a considerable factor. And so that's where I think it's not either the technology and the automation or – the import picture. I think it's both, and 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 so I think having having a debate that says it's one or the other yeah. is not going to lead you to the right conclusion. I would all. actually
1: agree with you on steel that it is both. Uh, in the broader economy, though, that's where I, let me draw this out to the total the total economy and total manufacturing output, because the way I look at the data, first of all, I would care. One of the president's clearest points of view is that uh, the economy is deindustrializing, and he wants to turn that around. He wants to reindustrialize the economy. He, his his rationale, in my view, is national security. That's what he says, <clears throat> and the national security element are sort of the positive externalities of making things. There's know-how. There are patents. There are lots of positive externalities when you make things. And so I actually agree with with that part of the puzzle. What I have trouble reconciling is whether we're deindustrializing. Because if you look at total manufacturing output, it continues to grow. What I see globally is a global sort of specialization within manufacturing. What's manufactured in the US since we're a high-wage, high-skill, high-tech economy is high-wage, high-skill, high-tech manufacturing. And we make a lot of stuff at that end of the spectrum and not a lot in in sort of the lower-tech, lower-skill, lower-wage part of manufacturing because of open markets is globally specialized. Am I missing something, or is that is that a picture that's consistent with your findings? That is a picture that's consistent with my
3: findings. Yeah. I'll add some value okay, to Okay, perfect. It. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> the output has increased. Yeah. Uh, and so you're like, well, what happened? Because we've lost, you know, you see all these abandoned factories. What happened to that? I mean, part of it is the, is the makeup of manufacturing right now. Uh, and it's a bit different than, say, it was 20 or 30 years ago. It's much more energy-intensive now, sure. which reflects the natural gas. Advantage that we that we have, and a lot of the byproducts that are used, and you've seen a lot of the growth in the output mm-hmm. come from the
1: energy sector of, of okay, and sure, da- and downstream so. in chemicals, they're, they're all high, highly mechanized. Highly efficient plants. Very few people. Lots of output. absolutely right.
3: Okay. That's exactly right. Okay. And so, and so that is one piece of the puzzle. The data point that I look at mm-hmm. quite a bit is what is our global performance? What is the U.S. performance compared to the rest of the world? And where are we lagging? Where are we leading? Uh, and you're right. You know, we're an innovation leader. Uh, We still file a lot of patents. We still have high performance computing. I mean, we have competition now for that. We didn't used to say, you know, 40 years ago, Uh, but where we're lagging really is in our share of global exports. I think there are a lot of complicated reasons for that, but this was concomitant with the rise of China. Um, Mm -hmm. And when you look at this this data point, you know, Germany somehow managed to stay pretty stable in in all of this and the U.S. and China uh, switched positions. I, I'm not suggesting that we adopt their export-led growth state capitalist you know, plan. That's not in Either our Either China DNA. or Germany. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> well, you, you know, I think there's a lot to learn from the German example. But to point out, you know, we're not Germany. We're much more flexible uh, in a lot of ways. But as a matter of policy, they have put into practice what Trump says he is for. Uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways. But they've they really put they, their money. They, Germany, have put their money where their mouth is. The system of innovation is designed to end up with production in Germany uh, through the Fraunhofer Institutes. And they're well-developed. They're well-financed. There's a lot of public-private collaboration. Their education system is geared towards Turning out highly skilled manufacturing workers uh, that will that will be able to grow inside of the company, but to have a talent pipeline like that, even their system of kind of capital allocation uh, is much more patient than it is in the United States. And so you have this Mittelstand that's the heart of German manufacturing that's not necessarily subject to these quarterly earnings pressures that our guys are. So they can't make those forward-looking. Investments; they'd rather either buy back stock or, you know, return it in dividends to shareholders. And so you have a you have a you have a government policy that's actually built around the health of manufacturing in Germany. So it's essentially twice the amount of uh, share of employment than we have in the United States in manufacturing. Basically, twice the amount of uh, GDP that's in manufacturing that we have in the United States. Yet it's a high wage. Uh, high regulation high energy cost country so you have to figure with, the, the, with slower
1: growth and lower living standards. Well,
3: with slower growth, with somewhat lower living standards, with some indicators that are far superior to the United States, with far less inequality uh, know, as like, well. And I, again, I'm not saying we need to be Germany, but there's from you're a, saying policy, there's a different model. from a policy intervention point of view. I, my argument is that if you have the right policies, you can you know you you can you can be the economy you want to be.
0: I just saw an interesting article about that, which suggested that that may turn out to be not right over the long term. And it started me thinking, because it did not occur to me before, that the argument was essentially that the German program, particularly the apprenticeship work that they do, which is very good, turns out young workers who are very well prepared to do the jobs that they're hired to do. And they have specific skills, they learn specific skills, and they do those jobs. In a rapidly changing economy, That's good for 10 or 15 years. But when they're 50, they're not as flexible and they're not as generally educated as American workers are. And they run into problems at a later date because it's harder for them to adapt to the technology changes that have occurred in the interim period. Whereas the Americans are sort of the reverse. We're not necessarily turning out the people that are the best fit for the immediate jobs, but we may be turning out people that are better equipped to deal with the changes they're gonna face down the road.
3: I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. I just came across my desk. I don't disagree with that. I do think that, again, looking at other models that have kind of been built around the German model, the Swiss model, the UK model, there's an example where upskilling, which is you know learning on the job or learning new you know new tasks, new skills, uh, new credentials, has been embedded into those systems, and so there's been some learning from that. Again, I think that's where the United States could could succeed. I think that they're just. On, on the skills and training question, I think there's an incredible amount of confusion in the United States, much, much more so than almost any other country, about who's responsible for it.
1: And there, is well, it there, the
3: worker? Is it the company? Is it the government? There in are almost, a lot of leading
1: companies who are actually quite serious about this yeah. and doing it. We have a friend of CSIS who is from Wisconsin, Kohler, Wisconsin, as it turns out. There's a big company there called the Kohler Company. And uh, their pitch to high school graduates in the, the area are, come and work for us. We'll teach you everything you need to know to have a satisfying career and that includes sort of lifelong skill development as their production processes change, as, the, as their business changes, things like that. So it seems like companies who need to do it will figure it out and do it. How do we get that transferred to a broader cohort, whether through government or through associations? which is often the American way to do it. I've studied this
3: question quite a bit, and I think there's a couple of answers and a couple of uh, of challenges. Mm-hmm. One is, again, uh, kind of the expectations of publicly traded companies in the United States, where it's about cutting costs and returning value to shareholders. And how do you invest in workers th- th- that's going to pay dividends 20 years from now? Shareholders don't care about that, unfortunately. There are answers to that, though, which is you can incentivize uh, different types of investments. You can incentivize different kinds of corporate behaviors. We already do that uh, in a number of ways. You can account for your human capital in some way. Uh, right now, it's a cost center. Why, why aren't the humans worth as much as the machines are uh, if you've invested in them and you've built their skill set? But you know, on your books, that's just a deficit. You're paying sure. wages. You're doing training. Uh, it's, it's not an asset at all. So I, I think there's somewhat of an answer to that. I do think that we need clarity about this question about who's responsible for this, whether it's the person to realize a robot's going to take my job in 20 years. I yeah. need to find the skills. That, that's an unrealistic expectation, I think. You know, should it all be on the companies? I think also that's a bit unrealistic. And then what's the federal role in this and how much are we going to truly invest in it? And this is just a side note but an important one. You know, we invest a lot in post-secondary education. Almost all of it goes to four-year degree Programs in higher education, Uh, and and there's there's a good reason for that, but it's at the it's some of that's to the detriment of more than half of Americans who won't ever get a four year college degree and that are left kind of fighting for the remains of all of that.
0: Study coming out what in two weeks on uh, worker training in advanced manufacturing, and it was stimulated by uh, one of our companies that is in the advanced manufacturing sector making high-tech machines and having difficulty finding people to operate the machines uh, and to do at the high end finding difficulty finding engineers but we really focused on on the not so high end and I don't want to leak the store
1: the results but uh, we should send it to you because we'll you'll look be interested forward to seeing it, it. I, no, I, yeah and this yeah. is of course the theme of uh, one of America's finest public intellectuals Mike Rowe star of Dirty jobs. Uh, and Micro is an amazingly really clear articulation of this issue, mainly because I think he wanted to he wanted to study music and his dad wanted him to have a skit, uh, a trade. And he wound up doing both. He actually sang for the Baltimore Opera, uh, but developing the trade put food on the table. But we have somehow de emphasized the skills. Uh, But I think they're going to be needed. I mean, if you look at the future, uh, this is a switch to sort of McKinsey Global Institute, their analysis of what's happening to manufacturing supply chains. First, they're becoming less global and more regional, which is an interesting opportunity. Second, they're becoming more intangible. So labor adds less value, but... Software and ideas and innovation add more value in the goods. You can see it in the software that's in our cars today or whatever you might like to, to point to. Plus, it's also advanced production technology is becoming a greater and greater component, which does re- require advanced skills. Now, all that seems like those are tailwinds for now, the do U.S. Do you see
0: that happening? Manufacturing is he right about that? is, yeah, it, is it right?
1: And yeah. and do manufacturers sense a tailwind uh, here in, in a high-skill, high-wage? Yeah environmentally like in the United yeah, States.
3: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I do think that even as we become more globalized and more connected, that supply chains may actually shrink their, their pattern. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it is risk. Some of it is it, they can be more nimble, more flexible, Speed more automated. The market, right. Yeah, this, there's a lot of reasons uh, for, for, for that. Um, and I do think uh, the, the skill set that's required uh, is much more about collaboration and problem solving, although to Bill's point earlier about you still need to find those highly specialized machinists because the big guys, they'll figure it out eventually because they'll, they'll have the resources, they'll figure it out. They're, they're maybe, but, the, but the small and mid-sized manufacturers that are in these labor markets that are smaller, if they've had a machinist who's been on the job for 30 years and there's no uh, trades program at the local high school, they have a heck of a time finding someone to do it. Uh, no matter what they pay, pay them, I will say.
1: So it's a, it can be a real challenge. And the big guys have these people in their supply networks. They I, do. I actually remember being yeah. uh, ready to launch a new brand of liquid detergent. We were gonna save the world with liquid detergent, which is another story entirely. But I remember the long lead time item was the bottle molds We had a a custom-designed bottle, and bottle design was easy. But finding the machine tool operators who could basically carve the molds out of steel, there were a handful of them in Pennsylvania, all in the 50 to 65 age cohort. (laughs) right okay and you you were waiting until they were ready for you okay because they had a they had backlog of work and so you know this is this you know sort of you know leading company lots of money to throw at the problem money didn't matter because of this skill that was was unique and distinctive and incredibly fundamental to to actually making the product yeah. the way we wanted it made. Right, and from a macro perspective, there is
3: a, we're facing our own demographic challenge in the way that China is facing one with one child. It's because of manufacturing hiring patterns. I mean, they stayed pretty stable, they were cyclical until about 1998. Then there was a paucity of hiring in manufacturing for about a decade, a little more than a decade. And now you have a lot of guys who, who might have survived that who are, in their 50s, and manufacturing can still be a hard job uh, and physically demanding. They want to retire. And y- young people I mean, even if you can re- recruit them into it, there's going to be a pressing need to do that. I don't think there's going to be 2 million unfilled jobs. I think you can find a lot of studies that will say things that you want them to say, but I do think that there will be a real challenge and that in our research that we've done, we found that there's two main barriers to that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if there, even if there are jobs. One is that there's the perceptions that the jobs won't be there because their parents may have lost their job on the assembly line or something sure. like that. And so the reference from the older generation is not necessarily a great one. Mm-hmm. The second is still aspirational. And it's this idea that, that a lot of people hold on to that I want my kid to get a four-year college degree. And, and that's the pathway to the American... American dream and even though you see all this 6 figure college debt and you know sometimes low wages for people just out of college or not in the job that they you know that they that they have a credential for you still see this pretty pervasive in society today and you know Mike Rowe others they talk about this but it's a yeah it's a problem we got to we got to hit
2: let's tie this to a current issue china it seems like what you're saying is maybe instead of beating them up with tariffs and other trade measures, we should have had as a country a moment of reflection and said, maybe we should focus on getting our own house in order. That involves shoring up, you know, manufacturing, making sure that our kids are skilled in order to fill those positions, making sure that there's less of a stigma towards the industry. I mean, you know, should that moment have occurred when it comes to China, or is the administration, you know, following the correct path in terms of just using tariffs as a hammer?
3: That's a great question. I think that the tariffs should have been used 15 years ago when the problems first arose. And I think when there we were... we had more leverage. And we had more leverage. And it would have set the tone for a much more two-way give and take on this. But there was a reluctance to do that. Uh, I, I don't think the tariffs are necessarily a bad thing because we as Bill points out, we we have very little leverage at, at this point in time. Access to our markets probably the biggest one, About one out of every five Chinese exports in, in value heads to the United States, and so we we command a lot of attention, or we should. I mean, we're not exposed that much in China. We do have some sectors have lots to lose. There's no question about it. But if you're looking at relative exposures, China has a lot more to the U.S. economy than we have to the, to the Chinese economy, and so using The tariffs to get some leverage, again, not necessarily a bad idea, but it's the outcome that's important Mm -hmm. and what we are able to get. And do we get more purchase agreements for soybeans, something China probably needs anyway? I wouldn't view that as a victory. Do we get some changes with respect to technology transfer and IP? Obviously, that's going to be helpful for companies that are operating in China or in competition with those Chinese firms that, that, that gain some of those benefits. I think that still leaves a lot of these larger issues unexplored about how industrial overcapacity has overwhelmed a number of sectors and will in the future with with China's planning as well. I know you all have looked at that too and I you know I think it's a very tricky path ahead for How the president. How likely is it
0: that the Chinese are ever going to do anything to deal with that last set of problems? I mean we're really asking them to change their economy in fundamental ways, one of which reduces the party's control over the economy, which seems to me is going to be the last thing they'll ever agree to do. Yeah. So, right? Well, uh, aren't we yeah. asking more than we can realistically hope to get?
3: Yeah, Bill, it's a great question because for 15 years, people said we well, just be patient because eventually China will change its export-driven model and will want to uh, w- want to lift up we consumers. We were wrong about that, <laughs> and, and, and we were and we were wrong. Well, and wait a so minute! I, I want to defend I, the past on that. Yes, because we were not.
0: We, we, we weren't completely wrong. We weren't. And, well, I think uh, this was not my portfolio when I was in the Clinton administration, but it seems to me that. Uh, at the time, we made the the right decision based on the information that was available at the time. The Chinese leaders at the time were pursuing a very different policy than they're pursuing now. Xi Jinping is taking everything back in a more state-controlled direction. One of the problems, I mean, you're right, we should have done some of this stuff 15 or 20 years ago. The problem was there wasn't any reason to do it 20 years ago because we didn't have the same kind of trade relationship we have Then with China, we have now. You couldn't build the kind of public opinion or the coalition that you see now back then because people didn't perceive the threat the same way that they perceive it now. Yeah, The
1: canary in the coal mine was indigenous innovation and the high tech companies saw that and were horrified by it and wanted to take action. But to Bill's point, there really wasn't public support for it. There is public support now, which is a good thing, but but the, but that's well, really where the th- you you saw a lot li- because I remember
3: this very specifically. You saw a lot of tough talk about this in two thousand and eight um, d- during the campaign. I mean, I mean, from Obama, not not maybe from from McCain, be- because there had been in the Midwest there had this hollowing out had started. I mean, you had seen a mm-hmm. lot of manufacturing jobs that had shifted, um, but again, I think it's this kind of conflict about. What intentions, what expectations are? What kind of other foreign policy interests you're balancing with what you can, you know, what you can get China to change? And so I, I, I agree. I don't know that it's inevitable that China is going to change its system. I mean, if you look at the at, at the planning plans to dominate you know, the, the industries that exactly. we're looking at as our salvation in the future. And so it, it, how we respond to that is very important. But back to the original question, I think it takes a number of tools. I, th- I think we do have to push back on trade. I don't, I don't think that we can concede there at all. I think we have to do it carefully. I, look, I think you know, Lightheiser is a very results-oriented guy. If he were calling the shots... Um, I'd be more optimistic about the outcome. It's one of the problems. (laughs) (laughs) We've said on this program
0: many times that, that, uh, you know, his worst enemy is his own
3: president. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th- I think he'd be a great USTR in a Democratic administration, for, for instance. Um, well, maybe but, they'll keep him if there yeah, ever but, is one. It would be a wise choice if they did. But but the other issue is that I think at the same time, and it's not an either-or, we, we do need to uh, get our own house in order, and we need to make the smart investments sure. – uh, in R and D and infrastructure, and uh, in, in 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 the workplace and skills and training uh, to do that. But I think that they both they they both must happen together. Too many people in this town want to
1: say it's either this or that, uh, and I think it's kind of all of the above. As a former intern used to tell me, embrace the power of and, which I think is exactly what you're doing. We actually do need to do both. We need we need a a workforce better suited for the the future of of our economy and we need to make a, a relationship that is currently unfair uh, closer to fair. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at That's tradeguys at We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to The Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a
3: CSIS podcast.